BeatGrid is the global leader in cross-channel campaign measurement. Over the last three years, BeatGrid has measured over 400 campaigns and half a billion dollars of media spend in Australia, the US, UK, Germany and India. BeatGrid helps marketers understand campaign performance metrics with the goal of leading them to immediate ad ROI optimization. Find out more at BeatGrid.co. Welcome to an edition of the Unmade Podcast, recorded in front of a live audience. I'm Tim Burrows. Today's topic is the dauntingly large one of marketing in 2023. We'll be looking back at the year just gone and making some predictions too. My thanks to BeatGrid as our sponsor of the event. Let me start by introducing you to our panel. Andrea Dixon is one of Australia's most experienced marketers. Operating in the B2B space for more than 20 years, she was working in SaaS tech companies before most of us even knew what software as a service was. Andrea has been with DocuSign for nearly four years and before that worked for companies including Oracle, Responsys and Noxid. Andrea is a member of the CMO Council, the Australian Marketing Institute and ADMA. Richard Curtis is your friendly neighbourhood brand strategist. After six years of running Future Brand Australia, in 2020, he decided he liked it so much, he bought the agency. He's also the creator of the 33 social initiative, and in the federal election, he advised the campaign, which saw Teal Kylie Tink elected. Naomi Johnston is general manager for media of Havas Media Group in Melbourne. I've never met someone who's worked for so many of the holding companies before. Her career includes publicists Starcom and Zenith, WPP's Mediacom and Mindshare, and IPG's Universal McCann. And Nick Garrett is partner at Deloitte Creative. Before he entered the wacky world of consultancies, he worked at some pretty good agencies too, including TBWA Chiat Day, BMF, Colenso and Clems. He's also on the advisory board of MarTech startup Mutinex. I began by asking our panel an open question. How was your year? Um, it's been a good one. Um, I guess this is my first full year in a new role, and that sort of changed and evolved over that time. Um, I had to play catch-up pretty quickly with a whole new category and a whole new set of skills to learn, but... Um, I think you're going to ask questions later that talk about what this year's meant, where it goes, and I think it's been a, an explorative year for um, people asking better questions, looking for deeper meaning, and broadening the horizons of where they can influence through smart thinking. And I might leave the rest of the questions later, which leaves the opportunity for talented people to start doing well and get on the rise again. Excellent, excellent question. Discipline there as well. We we won't we, we won't play tennis back and forward along the panel all night. But for this one, we will. Naomi, you next, please. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it's been a good year. Uh, we came out of the box pretty quick. Freedom out of COVID, particularly in Melbourne here. I think um, you know there's a lot of positivity around that. I think it might have tightened up a little bit now though, but. I guess in agency land, we've welcomed some great new clients uh, into our portfolio and new clients brings great new marketers to work with, new ideas, new perspectives, which has been really exciting. 
Um, and on the talent front, I guess the upside of the great resignation has been that we've brought new talent into the agency as well, um, and that's been awesome to get you know, new people, fresh blood, uh, into the agency, new ways of doing things. Um, so, yeah, it's been a good year. Richard, how is your confidence? Well, I feel like I'm only halfway through it. So, um, <laughs> so like one of the first things we did was kind of switch it from calendar year to financial year. So we are literally kind of coming up to the halfway mark. Um, plus, you know, as soon as Melbourne Cup happens, it's on the young and old and everyone loses their minds and it's everything like Christmas. <laughs> so it, I don't feel like particularly reflective in terms of the last 12 months necessarily. You may have come to the wrong place. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I know. Connections for 18 months time, maybe. Um, but, it, you know, so far so good. I, I suppose we tend to kind of have a bit of a focus for each year. You know, the first year's most acquisition is very much employees, second year clients, because I think they go in that order. And then, you know, one of the things that we're kind of right in the midst of at the minute is trying to become a decorp or kind of going through that process. So for those of you who don't know, kind of decorp, it's, you know, a sustainable business or a business that does beauty. Um, and so that's kind of underpinning a lot of what we're focusing on at the minute, um, like internship programs, no initiatives and so forth. So, um, a little bit of a different focus than we might ordinarily have, but it's kind of helping us make, you know, become a better business, basically. Yeah, for us, it's been a tumultuous year. Mm-hmm. If I think back 12 months ago, everything's pretty rosy for us, you know, coming out of COVID, we saw huge growth in sales and... Like a bit closer to the yeah, um, yeah, everything is looking pretty rosy, but fast forward to a late, you know, we've got the headwinds coming out of COVID and... And when you know it gets tough, it's tough to get going. And I think we've really had to um, to knuckle down. But I think it's also interesting to look at, um, you know, what can we do to shape, the, I guess, the industry and where we're going. And for tech, it's been, yeah, challenging you, but I think a great opportunity for us to really, you know, define our purpose and what we're, what we're trying to achieve. Cool. That ice broken. Uh, Richard, I'm going to ask you this next question, which is where we begin to drill down into a few things. And I think this is kind of a consumer insight, I guess. Um, cost of living, that feels like, to me, that became one of the biggest things this year. Um, how do you think it changed consumer behaviour and how do you think people change, had to change their strategies? Yeah, look, I think um, there's a really interesting thing I read at the weekend, knowing that I might have been um, this week, um, where uh, the boss said Woolies is talking about how people are changing their shopping habits. Um, to Sundays and then doing once weekly shop uh, rather than kind of ad hoc unprompted stuff through the week. Um, and talking about that as being a fun, kind of more planned shop behaviour, you know, more routine based, um, kind of less of the discretionary purchases. Um, so, you know, clearly, you know, they're seeing that at the front lines. You know, certainly what we see in our data. Because um, presumably your team we have to talk about future amendments um, is uh, kind of just an increased focus on on pleasure as one of those dimensions of um, brands and where they can focus their energy and, and there seems to be a really clear um, kind of pair of dimensions if you like one is pleasure the other is uh, consistency and that's where brands like uh, Walmart and, and uh, Macca's have really thrived. And I think that's a little bit post-pandemic in terms of people wanting a little bit more joy, perhaps. Um, but it also leads into uh, greater storytelling 
um, and people wanting to, wanting brands to tell those stories and, and go beyond price and, and go beyond discounts and whatever else. Um, so you know that's what seems to be showing up um, in, in the data that we see, and, and that's informing a, a lot of the work that we're doing in terms of you know the retail or leisure and entertainment kind of things. And I'd let you build on that with you. Um, how have the conversations changed with clients when it does come to thinking about, I guess, richest point pricing, for instance? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the rules of marketing don't change just because the economy does, right? Marketing 101 is we've got to market a client's brand and, and build trust in that brand and loyalty to that brand. And so even when consumers' behaviour does change, you know, they might be swapping out a brand for a cheaper one or they might be shopping less frequently. Um, our job as marketers is still to build that brand and that doesn't change. So from a strategic perspective, that hasn't changed. The tactics, however, yes, they do change and I think that's probably been the shift with consumer behaviour changing that, you know, paid media needs to reflect that and it might be the frequency that we look at talking to consumers or the, the channels or the type of media that we use to talk to them, um, that's probably the thing that changed the most. Okay, B to B, the inflationary lens, is it, is it still a thing? Yeah, we, we have seen a lot more price sensitivity uh, and longer buying cycles. Um, but then we've also, I guess, been planning more in the sustainability space and we did some research recently that indicated that people are willing to pay more if brands are more sustainable. Um, so I guess if people are trying to offset carbon and, and look at how they're investing more sustainably. So we haven't seen as much price sensitivity there when it comes to, I guess, um, sustainable investments, but definitely more price sensitivity. Nick? Um, I'll submit the answer from a consumer and a customer perspective, customer being client. I might start consumer um, I totally double down on what Richard's saying about meaning and storytelling. So in a time of challenge or contradiction, the deeper meaningful relationship and giving people a reason to engage with you, spend more time in your ecosystem, create actually more friction, which just sounds counterintuitive to removing friction, which most brands seem to want to do, would be a smart thing. So you are spending more time with the brands you love, but less time with brands overall. Um, I think there is this contradiction of really conflicting emotions we're seeing in a lot of categories. I think my answer would be very different if I was in an FSI forum, consumer forum, or so on and so forth, but it's the probably a little glaze of denial that Australia doesn't have a problem or this isn't going to happen to us with the sudden lurching and pins being rammed into us by channels and it heightened noise. And it's almost like nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. No, no, you've got a real problem. And that gap between nothing's wrong to you've got a problem. It's actually quite a steep, deeply emotional one. Arguably government, arguably brands who have leadership position. And I'd say those brands in any category that has the category high ground has a chance to be sage-like, inspire and change behaviour may not have started changing their tone and advice fast enough and smart enough. And I think consumers probably feel a little left out in the cold. If I look at a client perspective, and, and I'm looking at a bunch of faces here right now, we would, uh, I'm curious afterwards to hear how they're feeling and what the clients are saying to them is I think there were a small number in, it, in the 20 odd percent of clients who were Horizon 2 in this six months ago and are starting weathering the storm, strategically planning for change in tactics, but I'd actually say change in strategy because I think the tactics don't have to change, the strategy has to change. 
I think there is a sudden and quite brutal aha moment for, and I'm talking business strategy, not CMOs, um, but maybe they're a little slow off the mark, and maybe this is going to be bigger and longer than they thought, and could have moved faster. So I think if they hadn't already, what is probably good for the industry and for, again, consultants, agencies and the like, is an opportunity to be a real business partner, really get into their business, not be on their business, and actually give them the genuine advice they need to hear, not they want to hear. And I think we'll build on that final point on the economic headwinds as we as we, we, we get we get onto some sort of predictions for the for the for the next twelve months as well. Um feels important to look for some some wins, some positives, etc. etc. So we'll go to this one early. Um Andrew, I'm gonna come to you first this time. Um, what most impressed you in the marketing world in twenty twenty two? Now this could be Work, strategy, an individual person. Yeah, something. Yeah, it's. Try it. Anyway, are we able to hear Andrew? Yeah. 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 Can we hear her without the microphone at the back? No, we we might borrow. Yeah, if you don't mind lending the microphone. For me, I think it's been about tapping into emotions. What stood out, and I know this is a recent example, but. The John Lewis Christmas campaign, and I think consistently um, it does a fantastic job of tapping into the emotion around purchase. So another example I think of is Cadbury, you know, the glass and a half. It really comes in my heartstrings, and I think, you know, with the economic conditions that we're in, I think that's what really cuts through for me is, you know, that purpose and just really tapping into the human emotion. Um, as, as marketers, we're all trying to influence that consumer behaviour. And I think it's those brands that stand out for me are the ones that, that cut through, you know, talking product, feature, function, and really those that, that tap into that emotional space. Thanks the baton, Walter Richard. I'm going to cheat. And this actually got rebranded in 2021. Um, but no one seems to have talked about it all that much. Um, and so it's a car brand, Kia, that rebranded, started 2021. Um, I'm going to use as my kind of get out of jail card the fact that supply chain issues meant that you didn't really see many of the new branded vehicles out on the road till late 2021. And I certainly feel as though it's a 2022 rebrand, given that, you know, I've only seen badge more recently in kind of deep numbers. Um, and look, That's maybe, a lot of friends being able to answer yeah. the question. <laughs> I'm a strategist, come on. Um, Rewrite the brand. Exactly. You can edit that bit out then. Um, <laughs> So now that's my train of thought. It looks amazing. It is. It's fantastic. So, so, so I'm pleased you say that because I'm I'm struggling to find any kind of results. Um, so again, just having a look around actually on the plane this morning. Um, and, I don't and, want to buy one now. Well, and I think so. And, and I think why I like it is it's a classic rebrand. Um, insofar as kind of the, the product and, and where the product roadmap is going, um, this venue at the time was, you know, more interesting, more innovative, you know, EV, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the business is therefore that kind of almost um, creates the disconnect with the brand. And so invariably a lot of, you know, what happens in the brand strategy world is, is how do you align with the brand of the business so one actually does most effectively express the other. And clearly they weren't going to get where they needed to go, excuse the pun, with that old brand, you know, given that product roadmap. And there's always, it's always not a leap of faith necessarily, but you're taking a risk, right? 
insofar as you're going to do away with all that brand awareness overnight. And the only stats I could find were for awareness levels. So when they launched, they had 26% awareness, which I would imagine was dramatically down on where they were. And then that was at you know, January 2021. But it only took them to December to get to 78%, which is a big kind of... I mean, they're, they're obviously sponsoring the Aussie Open, for example, tennis. And so, you know, that's a big kind of stretch, that kind of a, a game to make in a single year. Um, and so, and, and that, you know, gives you confidence that one, you know, whatever you might be walking away from, because I know people like Ritson and others, you know, advocate against the rebrand and talk more to revitalization. But if you are confident that you've got the right marketing strategy or advertising strategy to get your awareness back up, you know, the analogy we often talk to is it's like kind of building and property, the deeper you dig, the higher you can build. And they've dug super deep in terms of repositioning and, and redesigning that brand to better represent um, and, and set a more productive platform for, for that product roadmap. And while they might have taken a little bit, it is literally just a little bit. Um, and I just think it's one of the most exciting rebrands that you see around. Um, you know, you get all the stuff that you see on blogs around, it looks like KN, and it, you know, isn't balanced or turned right or whatever the crap, right? So you feel all that. But I just think that it looks so dramatically different. So not only what was out there, um, since as far as that Kia Motors brand, but then also everything else was out there. And I think it is bold and brave, and those are often overused words. But I think it's just a classic rebrand so far as it's an exciting product, a really boring brand. Let's make the brand equally exciting. And so, so yeah, so that, that and, and it doesn't, I don't know whether it's done in-house, but it just doesn't seem to have got a huge amount of coverage or credit. But I just think it's a, a brilliant, a, a brilliant rebrand. Thank you for that. Um, Nick, I'm like, i on that. What's impressed me? Uh, three things. Uh, I'll take my, my day job hat off. Um, First is the switch to independence. I know there's a few of you in the room, um, but it's so refreshing to see leaders take the gut, have the guts and go out and do their own thing and see clients follow them and not just follow them, give them all work and build wonderful business models. I don't know James Leggett, but he launched his business yesterday. I wish him very every bit of success. I know these guys, Dan was in the room somewhere, don't know him as well, but a great business and there's another list of four or five uh, up in Sydney in a couple of years. And I think that's such a rejuvenating moment for the industry seeing not good talent, but arguably the best talent lead networks and in that space. So I applaud them all, but I think that's a wonderful thing to be excited about. Two, I'd love seeing the biggest business in Australia hire, probably the most creative Maverick, Maverick CMO. Uh, so good on your Telstra for hiring Brent Smart, and I think you'd be better off for it. Um, there's a few of us in this room, I think, that are fanboys and friends of Brent's, but wow, he, what he could do for that business is extraordinary if he's given that beautiful canvas to do. And that is an example for another 10 brand, I think, businesses in the market to follow suit. And three, best brand, biggest play, ballsiest thing I've ever seen, most emotively reactive thing I've ever seen, Patagonia, because we're all not worthy after what you did this year, and you set the benchmark for us all. Uh, most impressive thing I think I've seen in the last 12 months is what a media person wouldn't normally say, but the creative industry, like advertising creative industry, have done something that I think is pretty out there, which is they launched a women's mentoring program um, off the back of kind of COVID, and it really was a, a long-term strategy to address 
short-term problem, which is, you know, good talent being recruited into the industry. And so this program, you know, there's been mentor programs and support programs in the past, but I think what was impressive about this, um, it's called the aunties, and they created a scarcity of aunties. So basically it was an honour to be invited into this program. Um, the senior people in the in the creative industry wanted to be an auntie. Um, it was a privilege. You get a little badge when you, you enter into the, the, you know, halls of fame of that. And then they spent a lot of time kind of setting up, you know, who they're going to pair up with up-and-coming creatives, giving them support um, and also recruiting into the industry. And I think at a time when we have gone through all of that tough times of recruitment and, and trying to find talent, to find the space to launch a program that has been, you know, resonating so well and to make it so desirable for senior people in that industry, um, as a media person, I'll take my hat off to them and, and hopefully we might get a media chapter going um, in the future. Cool. Lots of great answers there. A reminder, I will um, uh, come to you for questions fairly uh, fairly shortly as well. One more for me um, for now, though. Um, slightly more sort of um, theoretical questions, I suppose. Um, what do you think the word brand actually means today? And I guess I mean that in the context, context of sort of, could be differentiation, could be purpose. <coughs> Could be value. Nick, what does the word brand mean to you? Um, I know what it means to me. I suspect the same for a few people here. Um, brand is everything. Brand is everything you do. It's what you stand for. It's how you turn up. It's what you say. It's what you do. It's how you innovate. It's how you deliver your employee experience, your customer experience, and brand experience is everything. I think that brand became a dirty word, and I think those of us on our agency side, and I was part of that, allowed it to become a marketing function. And one of the things I say to a lot of my clients that are sort of C-suite and above the board is, if you want to look at differentiation, we're going to start a brand. And if you think brand is a marketing strategy, I can't help you. Brand is a business strategy for differentiation and relevance, and ultimately should be one of the absolute key, if not starting points for transformation. So... Um, Technology is a leveler, it might be an accelerator, but it's not a point of differentiation. Short, medium, or long, well, medium or long time. So I think there's a real turnkey moment where brand is becoming the most important thing, but it encompasses everything. So we've got to get rid of the negative stigma of what brand used to mean. Andrew, you're a brand custodian, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. The brand to me is not something we paid a lot of attention to in the tech space. It's, um, it would be very product in product and feature and we haven't invested really in brands we're very performance marketing focused so you know, since COVID our, our focus has definitely shifted towards more you know, brand and we're investing more in brand which is really exciting and it's um, talking earlier about the sort of um, convergence of B2B and B2C that I think there's a lot of learnings that we as in the B2B world can take from B2C and vice versa and you know I think there's the, the lines of blurring is yeah, it's great to see as a big, big marketer that there's so much I think we can take from the BBC world. Um, so it's exciting, I think, for us to evolve and build a brand and really invest in brand. I'll come to you next, please. I think brand, whether it's for consumer or employees, is really about connection. And so it's all the things that sit behind the brand, whether it's the vision, the statement, all the products, they all have to create connection with whoever they're talking to. and. You know, all of those things with trust and something we were talking about earlier as well come through in that brand. And 
like you said, Nick, I think it has become a dirty word over the course of the year, but I think it's actually coming back, and particularly as we head towards, you know, the recession that no one wants to talk about, branding is going to become a, a much more important thing and, and the connection point with consumers and, and anyone that comes in touch with it. Richard? So, for me, kind of brand is going to be something different to every organisation, every business, product, service. Um, it's definitely not one size fits all. And so, you know, one of the first things I always look to is, you know, how does your brand create value for your business? What kind of role does it play in your business? And that's, that's you know, going to vary from one sector to another. So, you know, the role of brand is much higher in luxury goods, you know, up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, in terms of the percentage of driving decisions, you know, versus public chemicals, where it's got a negligible role to play from the customer's perspective. Um, and so, you know, brand is going to differ by sector, and then of course it's going to differ by organisation. I think unless you're able to put your finger on how your brand is playing a role and, and generating value for your business, you're always going to run the risk of um, defaulting to the category standard or what other people might do, and, and just conforming to your category in a way in which you just kind of fit in as opposed to standard up. Um, and if every business has got its own value drivers, then the brand needs to surface those in some way. So, you know, while there might be, I suppose, a universal definition of what a brand is or how it works or how you build it, I think you have to expect that it's going to be, or it ought to be, you know, quite different for every organisation in, in the way in which it then shows up. So I think, you know, the more specific you can be, then the more effective your brand is. Look, I had lots of questions up my sleeve, but I'm sure that you do too. So um, I think the very least we can do is offer our, our sponsor, Cam, the honour of asking first audience questions. Um, and I'll let, if you like, I'll, I'll get you to ask it, then I'll repeat it for the podcast, Cam. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so my question, again, revolves around the sort of impending recession, economic contraction, the huge uh, onus, I guess, that that puts on marketers uh, around budgetary fears. Um, you know, how do you, well, first of all, how do you confront that? And then, very importantly, what does that mean for ROI, for your internal justification, uh, for your, to retain the ongoing support of non-marketing decision makers inside your organisation to, to, you know, empower you on your journey? So the question from Ken at B Grid, and Nick, I'm going to come to you first as you really sort of um, touched on this subject, is with the impending, and let's call it a recession, it probably will be, um, uh, how, do you keep, uh, how do you keep that focus on ROI as much as anything else? Um, first of all, I think in difficult times, economic, social, political, whatever it might be, extraordinary things happen. And I've always sort of said, uh, well, borrow a quote, someone said, like, I want to work with clients that are at the top 10% of the spectrum because their business is so extraordinary that will allow creativity to blossom and pretty much give you some pretty broad, um, broad opportunities to do the best work of your life. Or you want to work with the clients at the bottom 10% because they're in such challenging times, they have to be brave. I think we're about to go into challenging times, we need to be braver, but if anyone who works in the creative industry, you probably say the words, I think, a lot. I think this might work. I think this could work. I think this is a brilliant idea. And I think the opportunity, whether it's um, consulting, agencies plus um, anyone with more analytical capabilities, is you've got to turn up. And I think it's what I know. And if I know 
because I've done my market mapping, I've done my business analysis, I can put the business case around an idea or the potential of an idea. And again, I'm not talking communication, I'm talking probably content innovation. Um, then you're going to be, you're going to have a better response. So we have to protect the most brave pioneering thing that you've done with a best, robust argument up front in terms of insight. And I don't think that's just insight. They, data isn't strategy. Data leads to insight. Insight leads to strategy. A strategy is something you execute on. So I think we've got an opportunity to do extraordinary things in this time, but we've got to protect the most amazing thinking we've got uh, and put a really brilliant business case for why it should start, why it should keep going, and why if it's working, you can double down. And the only way to do it is um, serious business metrics. Miami, you want to fill in that dotted line to put you in a session in our LI, please? I think, I know, this isn't the first recession that we've been in. You know, we've been in quite a few of them and we just need to look back in history to see which brands, which clients have survived, you know, through those times and what did they do, what was the strategy that they employed. And, you know, everything everything points to the direction that brave marketing, which you mentioned, um, you know, sticking to a plan, we know it's coming, let's plan for it. And I think, you know, what we're experiencing at the moment is that kind of nervousness that it's coming. It's like, it's coming. You know, it's just like Christmas this year has been late money into the market. People have been nervous to kind of, you know, put their money where their mouth is or stick to a plan. You know, COVID has made marketers a bit gun-shy. We've been burnt a little bit. But history says that the brands that have a plan, they plan early, they stick to the plan, and they take brave steps, will come out of that well. And, you know, that's whether that's a brand proposition or whether that's an ROI as well. Andrea. Yeah, look, I don't think you need huge budgets to run great campaigns. And, you know, I think having a smaller budget actually puts, you know, or focus on creativity and... You know, I know we proved that with the, the next time job design campaign that we ran recently with the Halhat team. We invested, we took paid media budget away and actually invested it in influencer marketing and saw that we were able to amplify our brand through influencers, not necessarily through paid media channels. So I think that you don't need the huge budget. I think it really is an opportunity for marketers to get more creative and think outside traditional channels and traditional the traditional square. Um, so yeah, I think there's an opportunity there. The other piece that I think is important to focus on, coming back to brand, is reputation. Brand and reputation go hand in hand, and I really see this emergence of the trust economy. And you know, we are custodians of brand, but trust is such a critical part of that. And you look at you know the recent data breaches and trust and security. I think we need to focus on a lot more as marketers as well, not just building the brand, but building reputation. Um, and everything that goes along with that, you know, doing what we say that we will do and, and focusing on the customer and, and making sure that we are doing right by them. Good job. Yes, so I think just building on your trust point, you know, we certainly see that come out in data in terms of which brands would like to be more resilient. And I think what's interesting about that is some of the correlations around building trust. And, you know, yes, that's at a certain level, you know, quite clearly, you know, trust is about, you know, doing what you said you were going to do um, and then, you know, doing, doing so in a consistent manner, which is one of the reasons why we get upset with our politicians because they don't necessarily do what they say they're going to do, let alone in a consistent or predictable way. Um, so, you know, there is that component too, and I think the build on that that we're seeing in the data um, is how 
you know, a lot of it is, is comes down to how you make people feel um, and the storytelling and the emotional connection that goes behind that. Um, insofar as, you know, yes, behaving in a certain way, um, but then kind of forging an emotional connection where people, you know, feel like, you know, they can trust you or, or feel as though they want to trust you. And so I think it's important insofar as trust can often be quite a kind of conceptual thing or a kind of ethereal, abstract thing. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, we're seeing, it, you know, just comes down to forging that emotional connection and, and how you make people feel. I think, you know, back to the, I suppose, my first thought when the question is, you know, unlike a new product, you know, which you can choose to develop or not, or choose to release or not, you have a brand whether you like it or not. So it's, it, you know, you then have a strategic choice as to whether this is an asset you want to manage or whether you're just going to let it wither on the vine. And so given that you have a brand and a reputation or an identity or whatever words you might want to use to describe it, like, you shouldn't just kind of let it go. You know, you need to manage it in some shape or form. And, and it goes back to the point I was making earlier around the fact that your brand will play a different role or drive a different level of value based on your sector or organisation. You know, so in financial services, for example, you know, the role of brand typically contributes, say, 50% to any decision. You know, the other 85% being product distribution, service levels, features, etc., etc. And so that gives you a bit of a marker, if you like, for, well, where am I going to focus my efforts insofar as, you know, how can I turn the dial? But if you don't know the role that your brand plays in driving value for your business, and you, know, you just kind of ignore it because you can't spend money on it, and you spend money on price instead, or whatever it might be, you're kind of fingering it in the air insofar as what the outcome might be. So if you've done your homework and you know how to run your business, you can run your brand in the context of the business, then it ought to give you a really good guide for what levers you pull. And whether indeed brand is a lever to pull or not, because it may very well be that it doesn't drive decision making to the extent that other variables might. Yeah, I met Cam briefly earlier and just knowing where I think his question was going. Obviously, I, I think ROI is about business strategy and overall performance. If this becomes a performance marketing conversation alone, we're sinking way, way, way too dark down the funnel and that's not going to get anyone out of trouble in the next year. Who's in marketing here versus agency? Who's the marketing for our clients? So a lot less than agency people, right? Um, <laughs> I'm seeing you over since who they they're people too. I'm presenting to some uh, ten or so marketing leaders in Sydney on Monday. So if any of them are listening to this podcast, they'll go meet me in I think you've got two jobs. That's all it is. Your job is to make customers more valuable to business and brands, and we've probably spent ninety plus percent of our energy in the last ten years doing that. And it's ridiculously important and it's vital and it gives permission to play long term. On the other side of the equation, your other job is to make brands more valuable to customers and no one is spending enough time, love and energy focusing on that. There is a tough time ahead and those businesses that are absolutely convinced that their job is also probably at 50% to define what they say and what they do. What they do is product service and experience design around making your brand more valuable to customers they got an exciting two, three years ahead because they can see rapid growth and acceleration. And I think the difference between those two things is probably the great challenge and great opportunity that marketing has looking forward. And I hope it embraces 
both handed hankers and it's not all. And at the moment, it's been, for the last few years, it's been all. And that's a really dangerous place to find ourselves. Let's invite another question from the room. If we could. That was the hand I saw first. And if you don't mind calling out your question, then I'll repeat it for the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Uh, my name is Sally Moskola. I'm from ACM. So I've got a question around regional advertising, um, obvious reasons. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, ACM is very strong in regions. Uh, we, to Nick's point, we have um, we've recently done some research and we know that there's a significant differences between metro consumers and regional consumers, uh, between non-readers and readers of the products. Um, and we also, uh, to Andrea's point, uh, we know that we've got huge trust levels uh, in terms of the people we consume our products. So my question is, how big a, um, I guess, focus is regional marketing for you in 2023? Is it a, does it have its own little section of focus for your business? Is it, you know, tied in with everything else? Um, yeah, that's sort of what I'd like to know. So the, the question was about regional consumers and how you think about regional consumers, and it'll be really interesting to, to, to get any insights into a... Are they, um, you know, underfocused or but also are they that different to Metro? Um, some of these are actually, I thought you would answer this <laughs> For some reason, it's big up for your friends. Um, <laughs> your, your big brand brand, I think is the reason why. You can't say it on the podcast, though. <laughs> um, I'm not doing all by myself time either. I think the, the, the thing I'd say from a branding perspective is that all too often um, branding can be a little bit one size fits all. Um, and, you know, more and more it comes down to getting the right balance of, of you know, what we might describe as fixed and flexible. You know, there are going to be those consistent non-negotiables around your brand. And then, you know, given that we live in this world of ambiguity at best, you need your brand to be sufficiently versatile that it can show up in all kinds of places and spaces and still feel like your brand. You know, we don't live in this world of perfect consistency anymore. I think gas stations are probably the only brand where you can make it all green and copy and paste, and, and that's kind of your brand. Um, you know, things are, are far more inconsistent now. And so, you know, the days of us looking at a guidelines document and going, because it all look the same, that they're just pipe dreams. And I think, you know, the rule of thumb now has to be familiarity rather than consistency. That you know, it's never going to look like page 38 of the guidelines. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like our brand. And so long as you've got a sufficiently deeply ingrained sense of what your brand represents across the organisation, not just the marketing department, but a wonderful quote from a chap called uh, Nimali Kumar, um, that everyone who works in, everyone has a responsibility or customer works in marketing by default. So if you've got that kind of mentality, then there's enough training and support to, to ensure that everyone knows what the brand should feel like. And so, you know, that then enables sufficient versatility that you can run the one brand, so to speak. But then if there are differences from metro to regional, um, you can have the versatility to enable that. And it still feel familiar without being so blindly consistent as to actually ignore the target audience. So I know that doesn't talk to regional audiences or regional communities per se, but I, I think that's at least a, a, a system, if you like, for you know, how you might manage your brand in a way that is versatile, but at the same time, is still your brand. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Perhaps you can build on that point. Um, uh, okay. I suppose one of the, the messages I'm sure you've um, been hearing a lot from over the last couple of years is from the boom transition. Are you, are you influenced? Do you think differently about regional consumers than you did previously? I'm not sure if we think differently about them. We're thinking about them. Um, but when it comes to, I guess, metro versus regional, it's really about the opportunity. And the only way that you can look into that is looking at the data around what your brand, goods, service is and, you know, how much it will cost to convert a regional versus a metro um, consumer and looking at the data and understanding what that opportunity is and, and whether that's from, you know, the client utilising, you know, sales data that they might have or whether it's from your media agency that will have data from previous campaigns or, or how much they interact with a certain good service ad or brand um, and using data to understand what that opportunity is and, and put science behind it rather than, you know, just because there's a population there or, you know, You've seen something about a Boomtown article that is going to sway you. So definitely Zara is the way to decide on, on, on where, what state or what you know, region you should be looking at. Andrea, then Nick, then we'll take the question. Yeah, for us, we don't think of region versus any differently. I guess a lot of our marketing is budgeting channels, so it's more of that audience is. We talk a lot about this anywhere economy, and it applies to talent as well. With COVID, we saw this huge exodus of the capital cities. Um, so I guess our consumers have moved, and we're trying to now look at the data to say, well, where should we be holding events? Where are our customers now? We're still trying to figure that out. And um, the same is with talent. You know, we've seen we're trying to now hire based on time zones rather than putting in a capital city. You know, we want to hire the best talent wherever that talent may be. And, you know, we know through COVID there was a huge sea change and tree change. So I really, yeah, I think the lines are blurred and I think we should be thinking of consumers as being anywhere. Yeah. Um, quick answer. Uh, at a macro business strategy, yes. Uh, spending a lot of time helping businesses transform. That might be completely new brands, new products, new services delivered. And at that level... Um, yes, I'm not spending a lot of time in marketing and living delivery these days, so I can give you an answer at that level. But in terms of an undervalued audience where there is an immense opportunity for certain categories to look for agencies and horizontals getting out of their core competency or out of their current business, should we say, um, framework, I would say there's a big opportunity. And then no shame in quick answers because well, we've only got about 10 minutes. We'll come back to you, Richard. We'll come back to you. I'm trying to get as many questions as possible. Um, I saw more hands over there as well. Um, yeah, please, far away. So 25 years ago, people would always talk about media inflation. So about, about this time, there'd be an article about media inflation next year would be 5%. And then maybe 12 years ago or thereabouts, it would invariably be Harold Mitchell who would say, media will grow 7.2% next year. And invariably it did. So there's, I think it's very important that there's a discussion about growth. I think it's also really important to remind ourselves, it's very rare that the Australian consumer has quarter on quarter decline in their confidence. Like, Barely never happens. So I'm looking for some information around what growth expectations are in our world 
I still want to go there. So does the panel think that there's still potency and sustainability for brands in this particular sort of why we start to see them to again thinking about growth and that being an important part of the prosperity of the brand? But is there potential in ROI for sustainability? Good question. So the question is, is there still potency in sustainability for brands? Um, Nick, you went straight to your microphone. Yeah. Matt <laughs> <laughs> was asking a question he already knows the answer to. But that's the impact. Um, that has to be. But if sustainability is a side hustle, no. It's a marketing tactic, no. There's been too much greenwashing, there's been too much um, overuse of sustainability as a band aid to cover up ills and other issues. The sustainability and a long-term vision around it is a fundamental tenet of your long-term innovation strategy or your growth strategy and has to be the heart of your business. You're not going to be able to survive without it. I'm absolutely convinced about that because consumer demand and sentiment is going like this. Purchase behaviour isn't going at the same speed as sentiment, but the two things in that compromise versus benefit analysis are going to start uh, moving in an accelerated velocity. I think the irony about sustainability is people take a short-term view of it, um, and I think Nick's point is quite right in terms of consumer spending versus general sentiment, and, and one kind of is lagging the other. Um, and I think if we stick with it long enough, and I don't mean that in a in a kind of a post-horizon hope kind of a way, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over time, and, and, and I think it, we're seeing it is important. Certainly, those sectors that are growing quicker than others, for those brands that are prospering more so than others. Um, it's clearly what one of the markets of their success. I think it's become hygiene for the consumers. You, know, you need to have that plan in place. You need to be a brand or a client that is, you know, building a plan around that. Um, you know, we used to pay going here example just before, you know, People are becoming a bit more discerning, and it takes, you know, a big statement and a, a commitment to a long-term strategy, as you said, um, to, to impress people enough. Okay. Yeah. I think short-term, I don't see as much focus on sustainability, but I agree it's a long-term view that marketers need to take. Um, the other part of that, yeah, this is um, looking at supply chain. I think, you know, as an industry, we need to look at who we really work with, who are your suppliers and what are their sustainability credentials, which is, again, having a longer term view means looking at your own um, partnerships and supply chain to see how your sustainability credentials stack up so that you can have that credibility and avoid the kind of greenwashing. I think it's purposeful businesses with meaning and maybe they will be sustainable versus sustainable fashion. Now we're almost out of time for the form of it, although the bar is going to stay open, you'll be glad to know. Um, let's finish on a nice positive, and now I'm going to ask you to answer this one first. Reasons to feel optimistic about 
a crisis. I think let's not waste the recession to do better things for better reasons. And not everyone's going to take that, but I think um, the confident, the forward focus, um, the excited about opportunity and growth are going to jump on this. And if we can find more of those people to work with, then it's, it's brilliant and it's going to be good. We've got to stay optimistic because there is so much opportunity in change. Which should give us some optimism. Um, I suppose my optimism would be, this, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, that line I stole from the Remington chap about life is my job so much I bought the company. Um, Why don't they anyone respond? Only one person I ever did, or at least called me out on it. Um, so I, I was a little bit inspired by advertising in, in that respect. But the truth of it is, it was less about like, my job, more about loving the team. And I think, you know, echoing your point, I think. Um, I really love the team that I work with and, um, you know, I just sell the company, I just have to really hire all the people somewhere else. And I think, you know, to go through those experiences with them and to all learn and grow, you know, through that, um, you know, it's, it's the challenge and, you know, um, kind of congratulations now you'll grow in terms of in the face of adversity, the opportunities to learn and accelerate the rates. Hopefully it won't be too painful, but I'm sure we'll learn well together. And as we're going to finally, reason for optimism. Yeah, I think relationships are hugely important, but I think with the slowing economy and the talent constraints we have, I think there's huge opportunity in that. I think you know, with greatest creativity can come out of some of those limited constraints. So, yeah, I'm optimistic about the creative that we'll see next year. So that was Unmade's live Melbourne event. My thanks once again to all of our panel and to our sponsor, BeatGrid. And a special thanks to Abe's Audio, who worked some miracles to clean up a less than perfect recording at my end. I'll be back with more soon. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio. BeatGrid is the global leader in cross-channel campaign measurement. Over the last three years, BeatGrid has measured over 400 campaigns and half a billion dollars of media spend in Australia, the US, UK, Germany and India. BeatGrid helps marketers understand campaign performance metrics with the goal of leading them to immediate ad ROI optimization. Find out more at beatgrid.co.